Well, good morning. My name is Sam Caston Smith, and I'm the headmaster across the street. And right now, I am the only pastoral staff member with hair. Which, which I'm just going to say, I don't think was an accident. I think Tom was looking ahead at the schedule and said, I'm going to have this haircut. We'll have someone else preach that Sunday. Pretty sure. Ryan may have even convinced me to, to lead worship, but I only know how to play the jug, so, so that wouldn't have worked. <clears throat> we're coming in this, in this series, we're coming to the end of David's life, as, as Matt said. And if you've been following us, you know that the, the story of David's life seems like it's a rocket that's just going to be on this wonderful trajectory of godliness and honor. And then we hit 2 Samuel 11, and since then, this thing has blown up, and the, the disarray, the destruction of this life has just disintegrated. And so today's passage, we're in 2 Samuel 23, we're going to focus on verses 1 to 7. These are David's last inspired words, the last time in his life that he's going to pick up a pen and by the inspired nature of the Holy Spirit working through him, he is going to record this pen from the deepest longings and cries of his heart and retrospect looking back at a life that is totally broken. And at the end of his life, David comes to this realization. There's only one thing, one thing that he can boast in, and that's the Lord. So you look back at David's life. When he's coming to the end of his life, what what has he got to be thinking as he's preparing to cross the veil into the presence of God? Here's this man who had been anointed, exalted, and then you get to 2 Samuel 11, and he takes Bathsheba, and then he kills her husband and lies about it, and the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, because you've sinned, the sword will not depart from your house. And Bathsheba, who is pregnant with child, gives birth to that child. And right out of the gates, David is going to see the pain that comes from his sin. That child is going to die. And then David's firstborn son, Amnon, you're familiar with the story, you're probably going, okay. Amnon is going to rape his daughter, Tamar. And David does nothing about it. And his brothers or his sons are furious. And so Absalom takes matters into his own hands, has him Amnon killed. David basically disowns his son, doesn't seek reconciliation. Absalom goes away. But when he comes back, he comes back with this bitter hatred toward his father. He campaigns among all of Israel to turn the heart of the people of God against their king. And when the opportunity is right, Absalom will drive David from his throne. He will take all of his concubines, take them to the very rooftop where David's sin began and rape them in public view. And then David will come back to seize the throne and Absalom will run away. And as he's run away, he's killed. And that's not the end of it. There's another son, Adonijah, who will try to take the throne and he will be killed. And when David comes to the end of his life, We see failed leadership. We see lack of wisdom. We see, as Tom said, this unbelievably glorious man who has become 
almost nothing but an empty robe. And so imagine being in your last days, being David, not only wondering what it's going to be like to go and stand before the God, the infinitely holy God, who had given you so much, but also to know that as you look behind you at your sons, your family, this is a house in utter disarray. And so David is on his deathbed, and as he's writing this, his last words are focused on God's faithfulness. Not only to him, but to his house, even when he can't see how that's possible. You know, famous last words, they're, they're, they're interesting. There's books written about the last words of people. I want to read some of them to you. If you knew that you were coming to the end of your life, And you got to choose and say, okay, because this used to be a very deliberate thing. You were to choose what are your last words? Really, what is your life all about? I want to give you an example of some. John Quincy Adams, who was a sixth president, said this. This is the last of earth. I am content. Michael Faraday, who was a chemical scientist, said, I shall be with Christ, and that is enough. Johannes Kepler said, solely by the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Blaise Pascal said, may God never abandon me. One of my favorites, John Newton, who takes this straight from Psalm 27, says, I am in the land of the dying, but I am going to the land of the living. And Jesus himself says, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. We live this life feeling as if it's all about us. It's all about what we can accomplish. It's all about what we can do, what we can offer. But at the end of your days, you will look back on the wreckage of your life. You will look back on regrets. You will look back on sin that's caused hurt and pain. And hopefully, like David, as we come to the end, even as we live our lives, we won't rest on our merits or even try, but we will rest in the faith that God's covenant with us is everlasting and secure. So let's get to the beginning of 2 Samuel 23. And David begins this psalm this way. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. There's a lot buried in that little opening line. Here's David. He's beginning the last words of a psalm and he introduces himself like this. The oracle of David. And he starts by telling you that he's the son of Jesse. And it's really easy to read right past that. But when David opens up this psalm, his last words, he opens by telling you, this is the son of of Jesse. That's a term that we may not know that, but that is a term of derision and humiliation. Bethlehem, which is called the least of the clans of Judah. When, When David 
goes to Saul and Saul says, hey, if you go fight in my battles, I'll give you my daughter. You want, you want to know what David says to him? He says, who am I? Who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king? Not a guy from Bethlehem, a shepherd's family? Even when Saul turns on David and hunts him down, do you know what he calls him as a term of derision? The son of Jesse. This is not a term of heightened significance. And David, when he writes his last words, is reaching all the way back to his beginning. When he was a lowly shepherd boy and a lowly family from the lowest of the clans in this tiny little town, and David is saying, when I die, that's how I will relate as the son of Jesse, the youngest of the sons that when Samuel came to find the next king, wasn't even considered worthy enough to come inside the house. That's who I will go to my grave relating to. I am nothing but the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. You'll notice that all of these lines that come in this verse, when I first read it, I thought, well, this sounds kind of puffy. Every verb here is passive. This is what God has done for me. He has raised me on high. He is the one who has anointed me. It's not by myself that I do any of these things. I have no natural right to the throne. So he boasts in what God has done. And then we get to verse 2, and it tells us, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. When we look, like if you're coming as the, as the great King David and you're laying up your last legacy words, you know you'd be tempted to say, well, you know, there was that time that I did defeat the giant Goliath. Oh, and, and what about all those exploits when I went off to war for Saul and I defeated army after army and battle after battle? What about, what about that? Or, or what about when Saul turned on me? But I was really godly. I didn't assassinate Saul. I endured my persecution and patience. I went out and hid in caves and in the wilderness for years and years and years. And I remained faithful to you. I wrote psalms of praise even as I was, what about that, God? Or what about when I did become king? I even mercifully restored the house of my enemies, David and Jonathan, and I lifted them back up. Or what about my initially compassionate reign over the people of Israel or my desire to build a temple for you? No, none of that makes it into his last words. You know what does? His only personal boast is that he is the sweet psalmist of Israel. What does that mean for you? When you come before the Lord, when you come before the Lord, the most precious thing you have to offer Him is your worship. And David sees that. He's like, Lord, I'm the sweet, I was the sweet psalmist of Israel. By the power of your spirit, you enabled me to worship. And when I look back on the sweetest moments of my life, that's what I remember, God. And when David is recording what's most precious to him, notice what he does. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. When he comes to the end of his life, 
Do you see David boasting in the fact that Israel is now the largest it's ever been, this expansive kingdom, unbelievably wealthy, mightiest empire of the day, right alongside Egypt. All these things are built up. David has all these things that he could boast in, but he only boasts that the Lord speaks by me and his word is on my tongue. Why? David knows that in a couple of hundred years, a thousand years for sure, his kingdom would be ripped away. His palace would crumble. Tom and I have walked through the ruins of David's palace. Everything else that he had sought after in this life crumbled. But there is one thing that has endured forever, and that's the word of the Lord. That's David's greatest boast, his greatest accomplishment. And one of my favorite things about this previous verse when it said that he was the anointed of the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob, that is a a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, I've, I've told you before that Laura and I have a bad track record of naming our children. We, when we first got married, I've told you this, that, that we were talking about when we would have kids. And I told Laura, well, why don't we get a dog first, which is not the best way to win points with your wife. And we ended up having our firstborn son, Caleb, who's six now. And we named him Caleb before I ever enrolled in Hebrew classes, only to learn that Caleb means dog. <clears throat> God has a sense of humor. We named our second son Jacob. So I, anytime I read through the scriptures and I find someone talking about the God of Jacob, just for the sake of just claiming those promises, I love that. The God of Jacob. Jacob means deceiver. So strike two. And he's learning. <laughs> Ask my wife. You know, I should have brought the pictures then. Now I'm on a rabbit trail. But we get, Laura goes to the women's retreat and I'm left behind. And you've probably gotten those emails of why men should not be in charge of babysitting. And it's like pictures of babies in the sink next to a bunch of dishes and pots and spaghetti and everything. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm on it. I am daddy daycare at this moment. I'm watching this little, these little guys. And all of a sudden I hear giggling. Never a good sign. So I get up out of my recliner. I go to the kitchen. And as I'm walking into the kitchen, I see handprints of ink and streaks down the wall. And I walk in and, <laughs> and Jacob has found our little ink pads that we have for art. And he has made himself blackbeard, you know. <laughs> so he's got ink all over his face. And I look at them and I say, guys, what are you doing? Caleb looks at me and says, I did not do that. (laughs) Jacob looks at me, and remember, he's blackbeard at this point. He's got ink all over his face, hands, his little handprints all over the light switches and everything. Jacob looks at me and says, Leah did it. (laughs) Leah's seven months old. (laughs) And in like placid with my wife. So he's living up to his namesake. (laughs) Love that little guy. But if you read the Bible chronologically, 2 Samuel 23 verse 1 is the first time that you will come across this expression, the God of Jacob. 
Reading in the Psalms, you'll see it all over the place because David loved to talk about the God of Jacob. Only three other people in the scriptures use it. Isaiah, Micah, and Stephen when he gives his final sermon. And by the way, he's referencing David. So why does David have this special place in his heart for the God specifically of Jacob? Who's Jacob? Well, let me tell you something about Jacob because Jacob knew what it was like to have a house in shambles. He grew up scheming. His name is perfect for him. He schemed his brother out of his birthright. He schemes his father out of the blessing that was supposed to go, supposed to go, to Esau, the firstborn. He mistreats his wife. The Bible actually says that he hated her. And her name was Leah. So there's strike three on the whole naming thing. He failed as a father. Remember, if if you know the story of Jacob, he schemes against his brothers. Well, what do his sons do? They scheme against their brother. They sell Joseph off to Egypt, into slavery, into the land of death. They forsake him and, and never go after him. His house is utterly divided. They fake his death. And by the way, Jacob will have a daughter. Her name is Dinah. And she will be raped. And Jacob will do nothing to seek justice for her. Which leads his sons to then go and kill the one responsible. And how does Jacob respond? He's angry. Does that sound familiar? And yet, despite all of Jacob's mess, God comes and makes a covenant with him. You know what he says to Jacob? Your name was Jacob, but I will, it'll no longer be Jacob. Your name will be Israel, which means he who struggles with God and prevails. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and community of nations will come from you. Kings will come from your body. Hear that. Kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I'll give this land to your descendants after you. And then Jacob later is going to prophesy, saying that the kingly line who's going to reign over an everlasting kingdom is going to start in the house of Judah. And so a thousand years later, bam, here's David, the first king, the first king from the line of Judah who has come. And he has seen God's faithfulness to the covenant of Jacob, even though in between that period is 400 years of slavery and all kinds of messes and scandals with priests and judges. And Israel is going to get utterly nasty and filthy and wicked. And yet, though there's failed house after failed house after failed house, the covenant of God is like a steel cable that connects and runs all the way through. It is unshakable. And David is looking back at the faithfulness of God to Jacob. And David is going, that's my God. God, you were faithful to that house. You raised up out of Jacob the 12 tribes of Israel. You made them into a mighty nation. His house was in shambles. My house is in shambles. Will you not show that same faithfulness to me? So I'm calling on you, the God of Jacob. David had that same promise from God. Four chapters before he falls with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what God, speaking through Nathan, says to David. 
The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Hear that. Who's going to make this house? Who's going to persevere and preserve this house? The Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, when you come to die, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's David's hope. That's the only thing he has to cling to at this point. Everything else has slipped through his hands. Everything else has fallen away. And so then he transitioned and he begins to talk about the hope of what's going to come from his house. The Messiah, the one who will establish this kingdom of justice and righteousness and beauty and grace that will endure forever. And this is how he describes it. In verse 3, he says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has come to me. When one rules righteously, justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, oh, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David knows that this is not him. But he's looking forward to one who will be like that. He's looking forward to this promised king that's going to come. After all, Nathan told David that he would die. David knows it's not going to be his everlasting reign, but a son who's going to come and establish an everlasting reign. David could have looked at his house and easily despaired, but this is what this painted of this new Messiah. David is this righteous king. We have this Old Testament that's filled with all these wonderful leaders and characters and heroes that parts of them we can look up to. We kind of have to say, well, don't look at that part, but yeah, this part's good. And so we go and we can look at Noah and man, great example, but forget that part and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon. And we've got Elijah and all these heroes, right? And they are like these brilliant stars that are in the night sky. And that when we look back at our story of redemptive history, we look at all these great guys who shine in the midst of this deep darkness. And we know that the stars shine brightest in the deepest of darkness. But let me tell you what David is saying. When the just one comes, he will dawn on them like the morning light. What happens to the darkness when the morning light comes? You know, the stars struggle. You can see them piercing through the darkness, but, but they're out there. They penetrate the darkness, but they don't overwhelm it. They don't conquer it. What happens when the sun comes? Gone. There is no more darkness. And what happens to all those stars, those wonderful stars like David and Abraham and Isaac, all those stars that you look out into the sea of darkness and you see little specks? Here comes the sun. And that sun is going to drown them out. It is going to be so overwhelmingly great that it will make them pale in comparison. It will reduce them to invisibility. And David is delighting in the day that comes. There is going to come a king who will make me look invisible. And man, when he comes, he is going to be radiant and blinding. Notice what he says. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Those are all life-giving similes. 
light, the sun, rain. This is a just ruler, one who will bring life to the land. And when he emerges, when that morning light comes forward and conquers the darkness and overwhelms and makes all other stars and sources of light look petty and invisible, He's going to come forth on a cloudless morning. There will be nothing. I went outside last night and looked up in the sky. Do you want to know how many stars I saw? None. You know why? It was cloudy. But when Jesus comes, he's not only not going to be faint like the stars, he's going to be glorious to drown out all other things. And just in, there will be no clouds to obstruct him. His glory will not be impeded by anything that this world can put in front of him. He will overcome and conquer it. And he will rain down his grace to make the grass sprout from the earth. What is David getting at? That God's grace comes down. It's free. His living water comes to bring life, to bring dead things up with life sprouting out of the ground. David is looking forward to a king who will come to bring life and resurrection. As he goes down to put his head in the grave, he's rejoicing to know that a king is coming who will bring life forward from the dirt. So David expresses his hope in the king kingdom to come. But then David turns in verse 5, probably the big pivotal verse of this whole last psalm that David offers up to God. And he says this, For does not my house stand so with God? It would be really easy to read through this passage and to say, well, is David saying that that's his house? Like, he's done all that thing? That's not what David means at all. In fact, all of the ancient translations of this verse don't translate it as a question. They say, although my house is not so with God, yet he has made an everlasting covenant. And even the question, this isn't David looking back at his own accomplishments. It's David saying, hey God, but you promised me, are you not going to make that come out of my house, that ruler, that Messiah, that Savior? Isn't that supposed to be what you're going to do with my house? Remember in 2 Samuel 7, when Nathan came to me and said that an everlasting kingdom is going to come forth from me, isn't that my house? But I don't see it. Like, look at them. My children are dead. They're bloody. They're buried. My house is in total disarray. Is that my house or not? Are you going to do that in my house? David asks this question or makes this statement, and then he goes. And it's like David is saying, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't understand how you're going to redeem my house. But, and this is the beautiful but, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure For will he not cause to prosper? That word prosper in the Hebrew, by the way, is to sprout up. Remember the rain that causes things to sprout up? Will he not cause to sprout up all of my help? That Hebrew word is yasha. It's where we get Yeshua and Jesus. It's salvation. For will he not cause to prosper all of my salvation, all of my desire? David is looking to the faithfulness of God. He knows he's botched it. He knows his kids have botched it. He knows he's an utter train wreck. And yet he stops and goes, but God is good. But God 
is good. And will he not cause to sprout forward all of my salvation, all of my desire? You know what David's desire is? He tells us in the Psalms. He says, there's one thing I ask, and this I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of his splendor. Will you not cause that desire to come true? Will you not cause it to sprout and bring forth life? For you have made with me. This is where he hangs everything. For you have made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. God, I don't see it happening. And I want to stop here for a moment. I can't tell you how many families, you know, being a headmaster, being on pastoral staff, I can't tell you how many families I've talked with where a mom or a dad is in bitter tears because of where their children have gone. Because their children are wayward, they're off in sin, they're waffling on whether or not they buy into this whole Christianity business. And I see devastation and heart-wrenching, and I try to imagine what that would be like to see my little guys walking down that same path. And I can't imagine the heartbreak that that would bring me. I want you to stop for a moment. Imagine that Jesse is still alive. David's father. This guy who raised his son in such a godly home that when the next king of Israel is to be chosen, Samuel is sent, go to Jesse's house. This guy who's trained up out in the fields as a shepherd and he is writing the Psalms and singing about the Lord. The one who, who when Goliath is taunting the armies of Israel, thinks not even a, doesn't think twice about going and fighting this because he knows the Lord will be on his side. Imagine being Jesse, being like, that's my boy. Imagine seeing him come to the king. Imagine him seeing reigning in righteousness and truth and grace and love and compassion and mercy. That's my boy. Imagine hearing that God makes a covenant with him. That the Messiah will come through him. And then imagine reading on the front page of the Jerusalem Times that your son has committed adultery, that your son has murdered his best general, one of his best generals. Imagine reading that your grandkids are finding out that your grandkids, as a result of watching your son and his wayward mess, that your grandkids are now falling apart and they're dying and scheming and killing and being raped. And imagine being Jesse looking at that house. Imagine Jesse wondering, I did everything right. I raised this kid to love the Lord. I raised him to follow after the Lord. I raised him up to seek after him. For that to be his one desire in the whole world is just to be with him. God, what have you done? David is making that same plea for his house. You know what the answer is? It's nothing I've done. It's nothing I could have done. My answer is the everlasting covenant that is ordered in all things and secure. 
That's where Jesse has to lay his hat. That's where David will have to rest all of his hopes. One of my favorite stories about a wayward child comes in the early church, St. Augustine, probably the most brilliant theologian, definitely probably top three or four in the history of the church. When he was a young guy, his mom was a Christian. Her name was Monica, and she was a faithful, devout Christian. Prayed for her son all the time, but he was pagan. He chased after this cult called Manichaeism, and he went and got drunk and lived it up and, you know, was unfaithful totally and lived just a pretty notorious life. Monica, his mom, goes to the Bishop of Milan, whose name is Ambrose, and just annoys this guy to no end. Can we talk about my son again? We need to pray about my son. Weeping, weeping, weeping. Can you please go and talk to my son? Finally, Ambrose says, it's not going to help him. It's not going to help him. He's not ready to hear. He needs to be broken. He needs to come to the truth on his own. That's not good enough for Monica. She weeps and weeps and weeps and comes back again and again and again and leaves puddles of tears until finally Ambrose says this to her. Woman, (laughs) go in peace. It is not possible that the son of so many tears should perish. And Augustine goes on to be one of the most amazing men in the history of the church. Now, I can't speak authoritatively on the fate of your children, but what I can ask you to do is this. Go back through the Scriptures. Look for instances where the people of God come with their children, with their house, and they say, God, I totally give them to you. I dedicate them, devote them to you. I need you to rescue my house with tears. I am asking you to come and do a miracle in my house. Come back to me and let me know how many times you find God turning a deaf ear. Might not be during your time. David certainly wouldn't see the redemption of his house in his lifetime. Not fully. But it's not in our hands. It is everlasting. David looks back at the the history of the Old Testament with all these guys that God had made, a unilateral covenant where God comes and says, I'm going to do this. He doesn't say, if you do this. He just says, I'm going to do it. And what you find is these unilateral covenants that he makes with Adam. Adam has a failed house. His brothers, you know, his sons are killing one another. Failed house, faithful covenant. You get to Noah, unilateral covenant. God says, I'm going to bless your house. But Noah's got a family that's a total train wreck. Failed house, faithful covenant. Abraham has children that are at war with one another. Failed house, faithful covenant. Isaac, the same. Failed house, faithful covenant. Jacob's children, total train wreck. Failed house, faithful covenant. Judah, good grief to pick Judah to be in the line. This wicked man, failed house, faithful covenant. And David is looking back at all those failed houses and going, that's me. Failed house faithful covenant. God's covenant is everlasting. It's the thread that works its way through the scriptures. It's not about me. It's not about how good a dad I am to that guy, though though God calls me to be godly, to lift him up, to point him to the Lord. Ultimately, my children, I am in the Lord's hands. 
It's his covenant. So this is everlasting. The Old Testament's like this mud pit filled with flawed and failed characters. And this covenant is this golden thread all the way through. And this covenant is ordered in all things. Take comfort in that. You look at your house. If your house is in shambles, if you can't understand what God is doing, know that he is not out of control. All of this stuff, everything that happens, there is nothing that takes the covenant by surprise or rips it away from you. It's not in your hands in the first place. It's in his. Thank God. If it were in mine, I'd lose it in 10 minutes. It is ordered in all things, through all catastrophes and tragedies and world events. There is nothing that shakes this covenant. It is ordered and it is secure. This covenant is in the hands of God, not yours. Our lives, if I were trusting in that, everything I build in my life is like a bunch of cobwebs. But my fate is in the hands of a God who brings his covenant. So here's three adjectives. God's covenant is everlasting. God's covenant is ordered in all things. God's covenant is secure. And thanks to Isaiah, I have a fourth one. By faith, God's covenant is yours. Listen to what Isaiah says. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And listen to how he concludes this. I will make with you an everlasting covenant according to my steadfast, sure love for David. This isn't just a history lesson. God is coming and saying, if you incline your ear, if you turn to him, if you grab hold of him with everything you've got, then that covenant that God gives to David is yours as well then you have a covenant that's everlasting, ordered in all things, and secure. This promise comes to you. And I imagine, for a moment, I imagine that when David dies and he goes into glory and he's, he's met by Jesus and he is radiant in glory and he's glorified in heaven, and I just imagine this moment where Jesus says, Hey, David, come here. You know, it's still a thousand years away. But it's already written. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. It's inspired. Let me show you the New Testament. And he opens up the New Testament. And the very first book, the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew starts this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Take David's pain. David's crying, God, are you going to restore my house? And then God himself coming to David saying, (laughs) let me show you who the son of David's going to be. Or go to the end of the New Testament and consider the closing lines of Revelation where Jesus says this, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. David, you remember your last words, that desperate prayer? Here I am. I have redeemed your house. And that's crazy to think that Jesus became the son of David so that David could become the son of God. And so as David always seems to do, he can't can't write a psalm without throwing something in there like this. Verse 6, but worthless men 
are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of the spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. And you come to the end of this. And David is saying the just ruler is going to come. He's going to establish righteousness. He is going to dawn on you like the morning light and bring life from the ground with this free grace that comes to you. But those who refuse, those who are like thorns, those who refuse to place themselves in the hands of God because they are so rebellious, they are going to be gathered up with iron instruments, with a shaft of a spear, and thrown into the fire. One of the more uncomfortable messages, and David is, doesn't hide from this message of God's judgment. And here's the deal. If you take the Bible at its word, every man on earth is going to face the judgment of God. And David says, if you are rebellious, if you're like thorns, you are going to be thrown into the fires. And if every man is going to face the judgment of God, here's the good news for yours, for you. Your judgment has already happened. When Jesus goes to the cross, he takes your judgment. He takes your sin. He faces the wrath of God that pummels down on him. So let's go back and think about this. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. For they can be taken, for they cannot be taken with a hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. They're utterly consumed with fire. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for a worthless man. And do you know what he did? The Romans twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Jesus is going to be redeeming a kingdom of worthless men. He's marked with thorns, the image of judgment, the image of man's rebellion that comes because of the fall. And do you know what those Romans then do? After our king is crowned with thorns, they take a spear and they plunge it into his side. And Jesus, in his suffering, is cast into the fires of God's judgment. This prophetic voice that David is saying, the worthless men, they are going to be like thorns. They're going to be dealt with with a spear and thrown into the fires. This is what the son of David has come into the world to do for us. He suffers in our place. He suffers in the place of worthless men so that we can be called the children of God. He did all of this so that this covenant would be everlasting, ordered, secure, and yours. If you don't know Jesus, take hold of that covenant. Trust in that covenant, not only for yourself, but for your house as well. And as David, I'm sure, would tell you, there's no safer place for you and your house than resting and the covenant promises of an unfailing God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that even in spite or despite all of my failures, my salvation, my future, even my family, it's not in my hands. Lord, you hold them with, with nail-pierced hands. 
You have sealed them. From the beginning of the world, you told us that you've written our names down in the Lamb's book of life. There is not, nothing that we can do to erase them from the pages of your book. Lord, we thank you for that certainty and for those of us who have family members that are not clinging to your covenant, who don't claim your promises. Lord, you are able to do all things. So we pray that the same faithfulness that you showed to David to redeem a house to save the world, that you would do in our house. We lift up the prayers for all of the children who have gone astray. Lord, you are relentless in the pursuit of your people. We pray that you would send the hounds of heaven, that you would conquer hearts, even if it has to come through brokenness, to bring our houses to you. And we trust in your covenant to us, which we claim by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.